Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet. This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ sports and recreation organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Laura. I'm on the board of Team DC. I've played and loved sports my entire life, and I've played with the DC Furies and Rogue Darts. And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team DC and I'm a diehard sports fan. I play with many of the Team DC sports member leagues, including the DC GFFL, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, Cara Bowling, and recently the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. And I also do a little drag on the side. We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers. Welcome everyone, Laura and Gabe here. It's August 10th and you're listening to episode 8 of Under the Bleachers. Each week we take turns choosing topics to discuss. This week it's Gabe's turn to choose our topics. For our discussion of all things queer, he chose the American Song Contest. For our conversation on all things sports, he chose Flat Fans. And for the intersection of sports and queer, we have U.S. Olympic figure skater Adam Rippon joining an episode of ABC's What Would You Do? After that, we're going to share our interview with Sarah Pickens, Associate VP of Programs at the U.S. Soccer Foundation. And here we go. Before we get started, we wanted to give you an update on Team DC. The 2020 Challenge Cup is back and going virtual. This event will be held October 19th via Zoom. Teams of five will compete and registration will open to a maximum of 20 teams. Registration will open in September and we'll share our details in the podcast as they become available. Start planning your team now because you won't want to miss out on the fun and your chance to be crowned the winner of the Challenge Cup. As for us, we're still here and bringing you episodes to start off the work week every Monday morning. Episodes and information can be found at underthebleachers.podbean.com and you can also find us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend if you like what you hear. Also, Gabe is crazy and Kylie Minogue's new song is trash. Now here's Gabe with our first topic in this week's trip under the bleachers. That was the best video that was out this week. (laughs) Move on, Gabriel. Okay, so for my topic in the world of all things queer this week is the American Song Contest, also known as American Eurovision. Since 1956, Europeans have had the privilege of participating in the Eurovision Song Contest for generations, but that's about to change next year. For those who aren't familiar with Eurovision, picture American Idol and America's Got Talent crammed together, but with more talent, glitter, camp, and almost double the viewership of the Super Bowl. Notable contestants include Gina G, Netta, Conchita Wurst, Tattoo, Bonnie Tyler, Anya, Julio Iglesias, Olivia Newton-John, and winners Katrina and the Waves, Celine Dion, and ABBA. The European Broadcasting Union announced Friday that they would be launching the American Song Contest in 2021. Each state will enter a musical act that will compete head-to-head with the other acts in five to ten quarterfinal televised competitions, leading to the semifinal and the live grand finale. The EBU is collaborating with top industry professionals to create the American Song Contest Academy, and with top TV producer Ben Silver to create a contest that, quote, the American version will be different from anything seen before on U.S. television, marrying the fanfare and excitement of March Madness and the NFL playoffs with the artistry and beauty of world-class performers. Eurovision was created to unite the continent after World War II. Can the American contest unite a nation? I hope Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams enter. So, Laura, are you excited about American Eurovision? Okay, yes. 
(laughs) (laughs) Two, I did not know what Eurovision was until this morning when I Googled Eurovision and started- Are you serious? And I am sold on this competition. It is (laughs) amazing. I don't know how I've gotten this far in life without watching Eurovision. I have so much to talk about. I am- I mean, the, the costumes, fans. fireworks, the dance. I mean, everything about it is 100% insane. Like, it's a crazy town concert on LSD, and I just, I am all here for it. The thing that I'm very interested to see about the American audience is, do you think Americans are going to understand the camp and glitter and craziness of it? Yeah, that's because the thing. The- I was like watching this and I'm like, this is amazing. And then I'm <laughs> thinking like normal American viewers, I'm not sure that they'll appreciate the spectacle of it all. Oh, I just... Europeans are in on the joke. They know that this is just ridiculous, like ridiculous bonkers and crazy. And they're like, yeah, how crazy can we get? Right. I, I So... First of all, I just don't know if there are going to be performers in America that are going to get that crazy. So the show might just become another American Idol, except that it's states competing against each other, right? Like, if the states, if they show up and they just put on a normal musical act instead of doing one of these crazy over-the-top Eurovision-style performances, then it's like, what's the point? It's just I need hamster wheels. I need LED lights. (laughs) I I need all of it. I need everything. Yeah. Mostly you should be wearing some kind of a mask and singing through it. Or <laughs> the, I watched a video of the Israeli girl who sang that song about I'm not your toy oh, <laughs> or something. A, yeah, she won two years ago. It's amazing. Like she looked like she, sh- she was like a cartoon character. She was wearing like this crazy like spotted like unitard. And like I just oh, yeah. the whole thing was great. Um, have you heard of Verka? I think Verka Sadershka. She's my favorite. She's from Ukraine, competed in 2007. I have um, not heard of any of this. That is quintessential Eurovision. If you just want, you know, if you, if you don't know what Eurovision is, just Google that. Ukraine 2007, their entry, um, and just be blown away. Yeah. Well, I hope that... Um whoever from each state is going to be in charge of like picking the act to represent them. I hope that they like make these people be over the top, that they don't just like pick somebody who like has a good voice. I mean, it's interesting because I learned in my quick study about Eurovision that this, the, the contest, like the way it started and like the original concept of it is it's really a song contest, not a performance contest. Mm -hmm. Now, clearly the performances have become, you know, the spectacle and what everyone's there, you know, checking out. But so the, what that means is like the rules say you don't have to, the person who performs, it doesn't have to be from the country, just the songwriter does. Because I I was like, how the hell did Celine Dion, who's from Canada, win a contest? She went for Switzerland. Right. So then, so I learned all this. So I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Like, I don't know if they're going to do it the same, like that the song has to be written by somebody from your state, but it can be performed by anyone you want. Like, but whatever, whatever, however they do it, I just hope that everybody makes sure that they pick somebody who's going to be like crazy and over the top and not just show up and like have an awesome voice. I mean, we have plenty of great musicians like in this country, right? Like, I mean, Tennessee has its pick of like, but they better fucking have Dolly Parton on that stage, right? Like, I'm just <laughs> like, <laughs> come on, like, it'll be wild, but... Um, but do we have a bunch of Russian grandmas baking bread and singing a, <laughs> a pop, you know, club song? You know, 
I mean, we better. I I just hope that they make sure that they go all out and they it doesn't just become another weird version of American Idol. Like, no, I want fireworks. I want shirtless men. I want people twirling and skating. I I want it all. Yeah, Things I want people fire. with like geometric shapes on their head, like and giant platform shoes and all. I Everything. want it all. I want it all. Um, the other thing that. I like was like you know your question being like will it bring Americans together like the answer is absolutely not like nothing (laughs) like you know like no way there's not gonna be any kumbaya if anything it's gonna become like I don't know it might just give me another reason to argue in favor of dropping Florida into the ocean I don't know but but I don't think that uh, unfortunately my guess is that if they do it right and they create like a spectacle that the show is not gonna have a what my guess not gonna be like a widely popular show it's gonna be a show that like gay people (laughs) and some artsy people are like super into and like most of the people who are like you know have disagreements already you know the people that we don't agree with that don't like us and our lifestyle they're not going to be watching because they're going to be horrified and or they just like don't have a sense of humor and won't get it right they won't understand what they're watching yeah i mean so i doubt it's gonna i doubt it's gonna serve the purpose of bringing anyone together but i sure as hell hope it serves the purpose of entertaining the hell out of me did you watch fire saga yet on netflix i have not but it's okay you need to add that it's on there. now on my list of things to do. <laughs> yeah, Will <laughs> also, Ferrell. I said, do love me some Will Ferrell, so. <laughs> he said his wife, because I think his wife is from Sweden, um, okay. showed him what Eurovision was, and he's like, how did I miss this? Yeah, like how me, Will Ferrell, how, do I not, how did I not know about this, and how have I not already done this character on Saturday Night Live a thousand <laughs> times? <laughs> like, yeah, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about it. I'm sure you I'm are too. Very excited. We I'm, might have to figure out some kind of a like watch party situation. And I can't believe this thing's been around for six decades and I'm only now learning about it. It's awesome. Well, I, once again, I have to thank you, Gabe, for opening up my eyes to the wonders that is Eurovision. I will be sending you many links and hopefully deuce points to the US. Let's go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so what's up in sports? All right. My sports topic is flat fans. After shutting down due to COVID-19 precautions, sports are finally back with many leagues hosting abbreviated seasons. Sports fans across the world watching from the safety and comfort of their homes have noticed one thing that's missing. Live fans in the stands. Enter Flat Stanley and his flat friends. Major League Baseball has taken a page from German soccer leagues and filled their stands with flat cardboard cutouts of their fans. For a few bucks, you can submit a picture and have your own life-size cardboard cutout take your seat in the stadium. Most teams around the world are donating their proceeds for the sales of the cardboard cutouts to charity. The A's and the Red Sox are giving away special prizes if your cutout gets hit by a home run or a foul ball. If a Red Sox home run ball hits the cutout, that fan will receive an autographed home run ball, two Green Monster tickets for a 2021 home game, and a custom Red Sox jersey, and a video replay of the home run. Personally, I would have preferred the Japanese dancing robots, but I'll take the cardboard cutouts. <laughs> so what yeah. do you think about this alternative to uh, fans in the stands? I mean, I'm cool with it. Like, whatever. I, you know, you said a few bucks. The Mets cardboard cutouts are like 90 bucks a piece. That feels more like, like more than a few bucks to me. 
um, but they are donating it all to charity. So I do think it's a very cool thing. Um, I'm not rushing to like take my picture and get it in there. Like the chance that you're ever going to, yours is going to show up on TV or you're ever going to see it is like so slim. It just, I don't know. It didn't ever know. Well, no, like you're hit right, by a ball. It just, whatever. It didn't have, it didn't feel exciting um, enough of an opportunity to me to run out and do it. But I do think it was a clever idea that they had. I'm glad that they did something like that so that fans could feel like they were being a part of something right now because everything feels so shitty. So, you know, I think it's a very cool thing, but I don't know. Have you been watching a lot of baseball? Like I've been, I've, you know, I've watched a fair number of games and I definitely haven't been paying any attention to the cardboard cutouts. I mean, the video game sounds have been cracking me up. Again, those are not video game sounds. <laughs> that is a weird recorded laugh track style thing of fan noises, of real human fan noises that always seem to play at inopportune times that don't make any sense to me. Look, I'm looking it up right now. The Mariners are only charging $30, so we could buy a whole row and just have our faces. Okay. I mean, maybe, like, we should do something fun, like, get a bunch of different baseball hats and, like, make a bunch of different ones and send them into various teams and then have a contest to see if our face ever shows up on television or not. I'm kind of sad that the Nats haven't announced that they're doing anything. Are they not? That's I don't think weird. so. Why wouldn't they? That makes I, no sense. I think some I, people are putting their families out there, but they're not doing the fans. I'm like, come on, Nats. Oh, uh, yeah, and I guess it's kind of weird. Like, I guess it is kind of a lot of it might be a lot of work to do all that printing and submit historical figures and put them out there. Like what if all the presidents were out there? Yeah, no, I hear you. You know, I, I mean, the Nats should clearly have a bunch of like DC politico types <laughs> in the fans, but you, you know, the reality is like nobody wants to see Donald Trump's ugly mug at the, at a ruin the baseball game for him. So why, why is there no Waldo somewhere? in the back? <laughs> I do love your reference to Flat Stanley because I do completely <laughs> remember when like people's little sisters and stuff would send me the Flat Stanley when I lived in New York and I would have to like trudge out and try to figure out a way to make it look proportioned right by the Brooklyn Bridge and like whatever. So I do like this. I think it's like a cool thing. I don't know why it didn't excite me enough to take my own picture and try to get, get in on it. But maybe now that we're talking about maybe there's something fun to do with it more than just like me in a Mets jersey maybe there maybe there is hope for me yet Gabe I don't know well if you're a season ticket holder for the Mets you get your free picture but other than that it's 86 bucks so yeah I told you it was like 90 bucks yeah it's crazy yeah but it goes to the Mets foundation so that helps yes I I do like that they are raising money for charity (laughs) hey I hear that the Nats are still doing 50-50 raffles even though there are no fans in the game like how is what is this so I guess you go online and like buy a ticket for a 50-50 like it's just so weird are people doing (laughs) that like you're watching a game on tv at home and you're like let me go log on and that's just so fucking weird but but in any event, the Nats do give a lot of that money that they make on the 50-50 to, the ch- to charity. So that is another, I guess. I, st- you know. I still want the Japanese robots. Have you seen videos of that? Yeah. No, I, I, I like that. That is, a, that is an excellent idea. I also think, like, you know, they could just bring in, like, eight versions of their mascot and have them dancing in different parts of the 
stadium, maybe <laughs> like maybe get the Teletubbies out there, just some other kind of like trippy character. It's just something to uh, you know, for a little bit of added entertainment. I'm, I'm they can hire all the all the out of work character people in Times Square to go out to a game and perform in the stands. Yeah. Well, what are like the stadium workers doing? The concession workers, like they they didn't get hired back. So hire them all back. Put them in a costume. <laughs> <laughs> Let them dance around and entertain everybody. You know safely distanced of course I, you know i think they gotta you're gonna have to step it up mlb get a little bit more entertainment out there because i love baseball but there's only so much baseball on tv with like out the without peanuts and and beer that like i can handle <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to keep monitoring the world of sports and hopefully something is actually going to be happening in the sports world more exciting than cardboard cutouts in coming weeks. We'll see. We'll see with hockey and <laughs> other than sports starting. Yeah. Well, isn't the NBA playoffs soon? I don't know. It's the whole thing is so confusing to me, but anyway, so putting that aside, what is your topic for the intersection of sports and queer this week? For this week's topic of the intersection of sports and queer, we'll discuss Adam Rippon's interview on ABC's What Would You Do? What Would You Do is a hidden camera show where host John Quinones comments and observes how everyday people react to a situation that would require them to either step in or mind their own business. Adam Rippon joined the episode to talk about experience coming out as a gay athlete. The two observed as actors in a New Jersey diner played a high school baseball star who was about to come out to his coach. Once the coach hears the news, he becomes visibly upset and storms off. For added drama, he tells the student that if he comes out, he's going to be throwing away his career. Nervous diners eavesdrop from a nearby table. So what would you do? Most patrons were supportive and gave advice to the young sports star. Adam spoke about his personal coming out story and would later meet and thank the unsuspecting diners for their words of strength and encouragement. All right, Laura, so what would you do? I mean, obviously I would support the kid, but what I would do that I didn't see is I think I would be a lot harder on that coach. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, the diners in that restaurant were all, in my opinion, way too generous and charitable to that guy. They were trying to make him feel better and like just explain to him like how important, you know, he is as a role model and blah, blah, blah. And if it was me, I would just say, dude, what is your problem? Like, how dare you talk to that young kid that way? I would have been a lot harder on him personally. So that, you know, definitely uh, is what I would do. But, you know, I thought that the people in the episode were all pretty good to the kid. I, I actually, I don't watch this show very much. Kind of bothers me because you know that there are probably, like you just, you have no sense of how many times they had to do that before they got the good yeah. reaction. Because obviously like if somebody reacted badly or just ignored the kid, they didn't sign a waiver to allow them to be shown on TV. So, you know, they show you three different sets of people who reacted correctly, but you have no, you're not getting an actual snapshot of like what most people or whatever, um, even, you know, how many people just ignored the poor kid or like whatever else, which I think would obviously be more compelling of a concept for a show but it's you know you don't have the ability to because why would those people sign the waiver right yeah i agree so, sometimes sometimes yeah. in some episodes they'll show someone not doing anything but they'll blur them out or you don't really see what they're saying um but yeah we really don't know how many people 
might have said something negatively to the kid. Yeah, or just ignore the kid while he's sitting there visibly upset, which I assume is probably what most people would do, frankly. Like, I, you know, it is awkward. Like, for <laughs> me to, like, butt in, it would have to be a pretty extreme. Like, I thought that this coach was pretty extreme when he stormed off. Like, that was probably would have been enough to prompt me to – to say something uh, to butt in yeah but like i do think that it's hard and like that your instinct is going to be to mind your own damn business true uh i wasn't really interested when hearing some of the uh the diners like perspectives like that african-american uh group that was there that they were saying you know my son played baseball and it was really hard for him to you know but you could be the first gay star at your high school or you know going on they were i thought the nicest like the first woman i thought was super sweet but like even the, though she the was high ponytail crazy, lady yeah the high ponytail lady like i thought she was very sweet but i also she was kind of like listen this is really hard you know you, i don't want you to feel alienated but i i didn't feel like she came out and said like it's okay to be you you know like i so yeah. i i kind of thought she was a little wishy-washy whereas those two black women were just like you are perfect just the way you are you can be a star it does not matter you know and i so i really appreciated the way that they spoke to that kid i did crack up at that young couple that was there because the, the i guess the the young female was like yeah you know talking to her about her friends in high school that are gay and like the boyfriend's just there eating his burger like <laughs> yeah, i don't know what's going on she's just talking to some random guy yeah <laughs> he's like this this bitch typical she goes <laughs> she goes who's she talking to why is she over there yeah he's like i just want to eat my fries man <laughs> like why is she got to get involved but yeah i mean she they, i i thought they were all good you know there were it was a good example of people, and I hope that everyone would think about the fact that particularly in a situation like this where the person was a child, like he was clearly underage, you know, he's like high school age kid, you have, like, those kids have a hard time, and if they are being shunned by the adults that are important in their life and making them feel like they are less than valuable because they are gay, you need to step in and say something because, you know, it's, it shapes your future. If you feel, you know, at a pivotal age, if people are telling you that you can't be successful because of who you are, or that there's something wrong with you because of who you are, that can shape your entire future and and it's really important that we um you know stand up for youth and and speak out and show them that there are so many people in this world who accept them and support them and want them to succeed yeah okay so the you know they, they were talking about ellen page they were talking about anna Ripon, about jeff Rohrer, who was playing for the dallas cowboys and came out as gay after uh -huh. and how hard it was for them you know, Alan, Alan, Adam Rippon was talking about how he came out right before going to the Olympics and how that was right. tough. And, you know, he's America's sweetheart now during those Olympics. Um, and he came out in his 20s. Yeah, so yeah it's, it's, you know, it's something still new. That's well, I mean, it's wild that a figure skater, which is quite possibly the gayest thing that has ever been <laughs> was so worried about coming out as gay. And like that tells you something about what it must be like for a football player like imagine yeah. being in a football locker room 
with professional football players, this has got to be like the highest percentage of testosterone in a room ever, right? And that's very intimidating. Also, you know, like in a locker room where people are often walking around not dressed and people who, you know, have homophobic tendencies are the kind of people who are going to not like like the idea of a gay person being around them when they're taking their clothes off, right? Like, yeah, it's just, it's a very stereotypical, it's like a, just a quintessential problem for homophobes. So that is a super intimidating atmosphere, super scary thing for somebody to go through. And it is crucial, right, that this is why it's so important for athletes um, who are not gay to come out and and talk about how open they are to having gay teammates, right? Um, and make sure that people are very vocal about saying that gay people belong in sports because ultimately you, we all know that there are gay people playing every sport, right? I mean, they're everywhere. Everywhere. Sorry, yeah. we're everywhere. I mean, Billy Bean obviously played baseball in Major League Baseball for a number of years and he was gay, but he just didn't tell anybody until after he had retired, right? There are gay baseball players, but just nobody is out about it. And it sucks that we have an environment where those people don't feel safe, um, whether that means that they're afraid that they will be treated badly by their teammates or blackballed by a team or ownership or they will lose fans. Whatever it is that they are afraid of, they're afraid of something that there will be some negative reaction to them just being themselves. And that is horrible. So if any of you ever see a kid sitting in a diner being told by an important adult in his life that he won't be as successful if he comes out as gay, that he won't be able to be as successful as he would as if, if he hides that fact, it is your obligation to stand up and tell that kid that the coach is full of shit and tell the coach as well. Definitely agree with that. hundred <laughs> percent. So thank you for that, Gabe. Uh, okay. So that's this week's under the bleachers roundup of all things, queer things, sports and things at the intersection of sports and queer. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to share our interview with Sarah Pickens, associate VP of programs at the U S soccer foundation. All right, welcome back to Under the Bleachers. Today we are talking to Sarah Pickens. Sarah lives in the D.C. area, and she's a lifelong soccer player. Sarah was a scholarship athlete for the Division I varsity women's soccer team at Duke University from 1998 to 2001. During her time at Duke, Sarah earned first-team All-ACC, second-team All-South Region, and honorable mention All-America honors. And she also earned ACC honor roll accolades. Sarah also played professional soccer for a team in Iceland, as well as for the Carolina Courage's preseason team in North Carolina. Sarah is currently the Associate Vice President of Programs for the U.S. Soccer Foundation. In that role, she is responsible for overseeing the development and implementation of the Foundation's national sports-based youth development program called Soccer for Success. Soccer for Success serves more than 100,000 children across the country and seeks to address childhood obesity and juvenile delinquency by promoting physical activity, nutrition, family involvement, and mentorship. All right. Welcome, Sarah. How are you today? I'm good, as can be. It's hard to answer that question these days. <laughs> 
adjusting for strange scenarios. Everybody's doing well. Stay on my toes. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Sarah. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, Sarah. So when did you first start playing soccer and how did you get involved in this sport? So um, my mom actually wanted me to be a tennis player and John McEnroe in one of his interviews said that soccer was good for foot skills for tennis players. So she signed me up for soccer when I was about six and <laughs> I fell in love with soccer. All right, so part of your career, you played soccer in the collegiate level, but also internationally. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so at Duke University, we had an uh, Icelandic goalie, Thora Helgadotter, and she's one of the, she is the best goalie I've ever played with or against. She took two of us with her to play on her team back in Iceland, Breda Week. So got a really cool international experience playing in Iceland and seeing how they do soccer over there. Looking back on your soccer career, do you have a favorite coach? Yes, I do have a favorite coach. That coach is one of my favorite coaches because she knew how to teach the game, which is important, right? Teach both the technical side and tactical side, but also really knew psychological, the emotional, the mental part of the game as well. Knew how to create a team amongst players. Actually pulled a lot of what I do as, a, you know, at my job now, um, we, we work with trainers and coaches across the country. Do pull a lot from my own personal experience um, with both like some of my favorite coaches and perhaps on my West's favorite coaches as well <laughs> to, to make sure that our work resonates um, with the coaches and with their players. All right. Do you have any advice to any young athletes who want to be an uh, aspiring sports star? Well, first of all, that's a great, <laughs> that's a great aspiration, but make sure you do your schoolwork because <laughs> you never know what might happen. You know, if you've got that knee injury or if you, the knee injury that took me out at 36 or 38. Sports is interesting right now. It's a lot different than when I was playing and growing up with the game. There's a lot of sports specialization. There's a lot of overtraining. There's a lot of perhaps going in too hard on the game when what I would probably focus on is making sure you continue to love it. That's what kept me playing for so long. It was my first love, right? And so However, you can maintain that love and, and creativity within the game is just hold on to that. Yeah, I hear that. It's, uh, it's a lot easier to do anything if you love it, right? Like, so it doesn't feel like work all the time. What qualities um, do you think that you gained from sports that made you just a better all-around, well-rounded person? Those that play sports can, can like identify many things that can contribute to your professional career or how you interact with your friends, how you interact with folks that are not your friends. <laughs> we just designed a curriculum and training in the program Soccer for Success that talk about some of these other skills, social emotional skills like conflict resolution. Um, I don't know how many, I, I used to coach, I don't coach right now, but I used to coach how many times does conflict resolution come up in one practice? Teamwork, communication, both listening and communicating yourself, discipline, dedication, responsibility, uh, growth mindset that's big in our world right now, how to have a growth mindset and not a fixed mindset. And as an athlete, you're kind of trained on growth mindset. I would say most of, most of positive like characteristics um, or attributes that I have, I could point at least a portion of them. Like, playing sports, and in my case, um, mostly soccer, but some other sports too.
Well, why don't we switch gears just a little bit and can you tell us what the U.S. Soccer Foundation is and what you do? I've been at the U.S. Soccer Foundation for what more than 14 years so obviously I like it. Two signature programs are safe places to play and soccer for success and so both are goal-oriented programs towards our mission which is to grow the game of soccer in the U.S. with a specific focus on underserved communities, which is important to note, right? The soccer is supposed to be the poor man's sport, and it is in the rest of the world, but not in the U.S. It's a pay-to-play model. While it has grown in the suburbs and the middle affluent communities, it, it's really not uh, accessible in underserved communities or in communities of color. And so that is really what we focus on. And so on the Safe Places to Play side, we've been, we've been supporting field projects for a long time. Past few years with an awesome partnership with MLS and Adidas and others, we have focused on this mini pitch concept, which is essentially like futsal court size. Mm -hmm. But um, with the idea that like, one, full-size field projects are really, really expensive. And two, we've been working a lot in urban centers and very hard to find space for a full-size pitch. So the in the mini pitch design, like people are loving it. It's an acrylic overlay. You can put a bunch of fun colors on it, work with some local muralists in some communities that design, you know, nearby walls and signboards to make it really like stick within the, the community, reflect the community. So anyways, by, we, we've got scaling goals by 2026, since we're hosting the World Cup again with Mexico and Canada. Yay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll have, we are, our goal is to install um, a thousand of those. Okay. And then on the programming side, Soccer for Success, that's our program again, really focused on underserved communities, looking at grades kindergarten through eighth grade. And it's a soccer plus, right? Soccer plus health and wellness is really our focus. So delivering soccer at the recreational level with some additional life skills attached to it. Our goal is to reach a million kids annually by 2026. So be working with a million kids in the year. Wow. wow. Yeah. Okay. That's ambitious and exciting. So can you talk a little bit about your work with Kids Play International? Yeah. I have worked with Kids Play International as, as a guest trainer, essentially. And they have a really cool gender equity in sports program that started in Rwanda. And then a couple years ago, expanded to Cambodia. I joined them in launching the Cambodia program. And part of that, because um, it was also supported by sports diplomacy funding, we did a training in Burma as well. I mean, I can't, uh, the, so back to Iceland, Iceland was the first time I really understood cross-cultural learning. I really understood that there's, there's so much to learn from each other. Iceland does so many things that we could learn from that and vice versa, but like the, just the, the, the sharing, the knowledge sharing that takes place. And so I spent what, two weeks, three weeks over there in Cambodia and Burma with the, the amount of knowledge and learning that happens within that uh, two weeks could extend a, the year. The program with Kids Play International with gender equity and using kind of sports 
as the platform to deliver that content was really cool. And I've seen it like with Kids Play International and a bunch of other programs that use soccer or use sports and just manipulate it to talk about <laughs> all these different things, right? And it's just an international language that everyone can pick up on without necessarily speaking it. Yeah, soccer is kind of universal all around the world. That's, um, it's funny, Gabe and I just yesterday were recording a different episode for the podcast and we were talking about the new Nike commercial um, with the split screen. And, you know, we were talking just about how, you know, sports, it just crosses all boundaries and it's such a, such an exciting thing. So sort of along that vein, let me ask you, do you think, what role do you think athletes and athletics have in the broader context of, of affecting social issues and social change? It's debatable. <laughs> uh, so I did teach social responsibility in sports for several years, and people come from different sides of this discussion. Our athletes are athletes. Like, they're there to play a game, right, and perform at a game. And um, sometimes I think society, we tend to put more pressure on them than what what they really signed up for. But I think you have seen examples recently and really throughout history where an athlete has used their platform to better society, to, to really use their voice and their platform to make a difference. And I've always said like, you've got sports, you've got religion, you've got politics, you've got like just certain things that are, that are so powerful that, that really like can, create a movement. And so where I land on that debate is that athletes, if they have that much power, with that comes responsibility. And so deciding what they want to do with their platform and then using their resources and their voice and their platform to do those things is really important because they got a big audience. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you, you're, you are um, an out member of the LGBT community. Were you out in college? And um, did you find that, you know, college athletics was a safe and welcoming space for out athletes? When, no. When I, <laughs> no. Um, Not I all of that. <laughs> I am, I am a proud LGBT community member, um, very proud, and it took me a while to, to get here to be able to say something like that. I think college was a very difficult experience for me, um, and you'd think, you know, oftentimes you'll find acceptance in the sports community where you might not otherwise, but I did not personally have that experience. I, I, I wonder if it has evolved today for players today if it's a little bit better but um, back in my heyday <laughs> it wasn't easy it wasn't it wasn't really accepted and so it was hard yeah it was very hard yeah yeah no I can imagine I we try to um you know talk to people of all different sort of um age groups and generations and you know team dc has a college scholarship program where we're meeting out and proud high school athletes and it blows my mind you know how yeah. how um just sort of secure so many of them are and you know they a lot of people have stories about you know some a bit of an adjustment in a locker room here or there but for the most part 
at the high school level, we're hearing a lot of um, really positive improvements in that in that regard, and it's been really heartening. But I'm not surprised to hear you say that the late 90s and into 2001, you know, wasn't um, we weren't quite there yet. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to at least briefly touch on. I know that you've recently been pretty vocal about concussion risks and the issue of concussions. Um, with athletes. Can you tell us how you came to be focused on that issue? So it's a very, it's a very personal and close issue to me because my father passed away from CTE. He had a troubling life (laughs) Um, and uh, saw pretty steep decline in health, physical, mental, etc. And no doctors could really understand why. I think he was misdiagnosed with Lou Gehrig's ALS. Eventually came around to some doctors that pinpointed um, CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, as the cause or the potential cause of what was going on with him. Um, And so he decided to donate his brain to the Concussion Legacy Foundation. Um, He partners with Boston University. He, along with many others, have donated their brains and they've been able to do a lot of kind of advanced research, advancing of research around CTE and found out that he did have a late stage um, version of CTE, which was main cause of his death. And, you know, just hearing the stories, again, like, there's been a lot of improvement from when he played till now, um, in terms of safety, precautions, return to play, gear, like helmets, etc. But the the amount of concussions he had from being a running back for, for University of Tennessee Volunteers, and how hard he got hit, how many times he had concussions, and then how they would put him back into play in that same game. And one of his friends told the story that, and this is, I think, in high school, but that he he was taking off his gear at halftime for one of their games. And, and Jim was like, why are you taking off your gear? And my dad was like, well, that was a tough game. That was a tough game. And, and Jim was like, you know, we have a whole second half. <laughs> so out of it that he didn't. He didn't know. So for me, you know, it's, uh, I lost, I lost the life of my father to concussions, to CTE. And it's interesting. Like, I think it's more well known than it really is. Like, I think I thought everyone watched the movie concussions with Will Smith and that everyone's just like knows this. And, um, it's not true. They don't even, my wife is in the medical field and she says it's not even well known there. So that's surprising. And then I also, I just think that if we're really going to cherish our athletes as much, (laughs) um, we should take better care of them. And so whatever safety precautions are available for the football community, they need to be more proactive in that space. And, you know, they have to a certain degree, but more could be done. And, and it does extend into other sports, wrestling, Soccer, you know, the U.S. Soccer Federation put out, they did a pretty good job of um, responding to new advancements in research and changing the game around that. Do you know of any steps that sports fans could take to get involved in sharing the message about CTE or 
advocating for more protections for athletes? Well, the, the Concussion Legacy Foundation is the first place to start. They have a lot of campaigns that go out um, and a lot of ways that you can get kind of stuck in on learning more and then also messaging around CTE. And then I think really a lot of change happens when <laughs> general public kind of latches on to something and uh, um, demands change. And so we probably won't see like any more significant changes in concussions or CTE unless that happens, right? So with your local leagues, uh, whether it's youth or you're, you're a fan of a pro league, um, digging into what their rules and regulations are and writing if you can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't find it and if, if there's nothing there then you know making an even bigger fuss so yeah no that's great advice I appreciate that yeah. um Sarah I know that we promised to have you out of here before an important business meeting so <laughs> I want to respect your time and wrap up thank you so much it was really great to talk to you I love talking y'all too we should do this more often yeah that was a really cool chat thanks Thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC. For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org. We want to give credit to Ralph Elston, a Team DC board member, for the design of our logo. Also, our intro and outro music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and our podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend so that we can all keep meeting Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC Vice President Laura Freyer and Team DC Board Member for Fundraising Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the hosts and the participants on Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.